Hello, welcome to a very special edition of the Classical Music Pod. It's Summer Book Club. We've collected up reading recommendations from the great and the good. Some big hitters. Big. Hopefully they'll suggest something to keep you occupied over the summer months as we take a bit of a break and get out of your ears after a long season of podding. You'll hear some old guests, some future ones, and there's even a ripping yarn about a robot orchestra. cannot be taken at the moment, so please leave your message after the tone. My name is Erilyn Wallen and I'm a composer. I can highly recommend The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. It's the third in the trilogy about Thomas Cromwell and so it's set in the time of Henry VIII. While it's not a book about music, the scale of it encompassing the world, the atmosphere that time, the sense of life at court, but also life in the street. And there are moments where music definitely pervades. Music's often playing, even in the background. But there's a sense in this work that, I mean, the scale and achievement of it is inspiration for me as a composer. Hello, my name's Andrew Meller. I'm a music journalist and critic based in Copenhagen. And I'd like to recommend a book called The Lost Musicians by William Heinerson. This is, in a way, the national novel of the Faroe Islands, the little country that sits upon an archipelago of islands halfway between Norway and Iceland. And the book was published in 1950 and paints a really moving picture of an emerging music scene at the turn of the 20th century and how this country with more than its fair share of talent and belief in music used music not only as a force for good but also as a means by which it could bind its, its own remote communities together. It's full of heartbreak, it's full of love, uh, it's full of sincerity and it's also full of really, really beautiful music. And uh, if you can't make it to the Faroe Islands, this book is the next best thing. Hello, I'm Harry Christophers, the founder and conductor of The Sixteen. Um, actually, I'm not reading a book about music at the moment. I'm reading a book about Greek myths. Um, I was uh, I used to study classics and uh, was brought on, up on Robert Graves's books on Greek mythology. But this book I'm reading at the moment is just fantastic. It's Stephen Fry's Mythos, the whole of the Greek myths retold. But actually, it does have a relevance to a lot of the music I do. I mean, as many people know, I'm passionate about Handel oratorios. So when you're conducting the likes of Hercules and Semele, um, the Greek myths is very re- relevant to that. Um, so I'm, I'm turning a page and I read about Megera and Tysiphone and of course the fantastic story of, uh, of Jupiter and Semele uh, and Stephen Fry just brings it all to life in an incredibly humorous way it's quite fantastic I recommend it to everybody what a good book 
What a good read. Why don't you rent it from the library? Insightful and engaging with a good laugh on every page. Think I recommend to a friend. Let's play a quick round of Guess the Composer, Tim. I'm going to play you a clip from our analysis piece for today, and I'd like you to try and give the illusion to the listeners that you don't know who it's by and haven't read the show notes. (laughs) No problem, I'll adopt the naivete. It sounds a bit like uh, the Rocky theme tune stumbled into the last night of the proms. Conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt, perhaps. No doubt there are many guesses bounding around for who composed our piece for today. And I think the answer might surprise some of us. It's none other than the sesterscentennial man. What's that? The semi-quincentennial celebrant himself? Happy bisenquinquangungary, or 250th anniversary... Ludwig van Beethoven! Now, is it a faux pas to say that it didn't sound very good considering it's by Beethoven? Not at all. It's been called things like the worst piece Beethoven ever wrote, an atrocious potboiler, and his contemporary Gottfried Weber said, I wish that oblivion might very soon draw an expiatory veil on such an aberration of Beethoven's muse, through which he has desecrated the glorified object, art, and himself. (laughs) Brutal. Beethoven candidly replied that, Ach, you pitiful scoundrel, my shit is better than anything you ever thought. (laughs) He truly was a poet, wasn't he? Sam, why are you telling us about a bad bit of Beethoven? Well, it came up in one of my favourite books of the year, Ali Smith's Spring, part of her Seasons quadrilogy. There's a small but fun section inspired by Beethoven and the Panharmonicon, the amazing instrument for which this piece was originally written. I've got so many questions. Well, buckle up, because this is a story just stuffed with bizarre characters and trivia. I can't wait. Analysis Let's start by introducing my new favourite 19th century smoke and mirrors showman, Johann Nepomuk Maltzel. Great name. Smoke and mirrors? Great name and a great story. Smoke and mirrors Maltzel is best known for manufacturing the metronome, but he also had a sideline in displaying a fraudulent chess automaton. Classic, yep. Selling improved ear trumpets, which is how he came across Beethoven. Obviously, yep. And of course the Panharmonicon. The Panharmonicon is an instrument he invented and was billed as the mechanical orchestra. It was basically like a gigantic player piano. So those ones with the roll that we hear in the old-time pubs. Exactly that, yeah, or a pianola, which were a real point of interest for early 20th century composers from Stravinsky to Conlon Nancaro. The avant-garde American composer and tongue-twister, of course. Conlon Nancaro, Conlon Nancaro, Conlon Nancaro, Conlon Nancaro. The Panharmonicon is a gigantic version of a player piano, sort of blending an organ, expanded percussion section and enough brass to front a Covid briefing. 300,034,974,000 tests carried out across the UK. Here's your first good bit of trivia. 
unusually for organs at the time. It used single free reed pipes, which were fresh in the soundscape. Having only been introduced to Europe from China in about 1777, the instrument that used them in China, the Sheng, had been about since roughly 1100 BC, so elements of the Panharmonicon, this precursor of the synthesizer, had been developing for almost 2,000 years by the time it got to Beethoven. And it has rolls? Yes! Using large metallic cylinders, which are just like the player piano's roll, it trips switches and makes the instruments play. Do they still exist by any chance? Sadly, it's thought that the last remaining example was destroyed in a World War II air raid on Stuttgart. And Beethoven wrote the piece about Wellington for this instrument. Yeah. The orchestral concert version, Wellington Sieg, is a 15-minute programmatic overture that is still played today by orchestras and is an expansion of the seven-minute piece for the Panharmonicon. And what was Wellington Sieging then? Wellington Sieg, Wellington's victory, is in the Battle of Vittoria in Spain. For fans of Sean Bean, mm. it's the one in the finale of Sharp's Honour. Yeah. At it, the Duke of Wellington made his name and led the British, Spanish and Portuguese forces to a pivotal pummeling of the French forces under Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother. Bit of French Empire nepotism at work there with Joseph. Anyway, how does the battle occur musically? We start by meeting the two opposing forces. The British are introduced with their fanfare. real indictment of the British imagination, that fanfare, isn't it? World-leading. After the introduction, <laughs> we hear a rendition of Rule Britannia, and the second subject is God Save the Queen, a tune Beethoven apparently loved. Hmm. No accounting for taste. So do we have something similar for the French? Yes but not the Marseillaise, as it was illegal to play that in Vienna at the time. OK, so what does Beethoven use instead? Well, have a listen. <laughs> For he's a jolly good... Frenchman, is that? <laughs> it's true that we know this tune as for He's a Jolly Good Fellow, but actually it's a French folk song entitled Marlborough Has Left for War. The piece uses two tunes with lots of ratchets and drums, used as a rather blunt pictorial representation of cannons and guns. Okay, what did audiences make of it at the time then? They loved it. Really? Yep. Dedicated to Prince George IV, the one Hugh Laurie plays in Blackadder, this was probably Beethoven's most popular piece during his lifetime. Forget the ninth, the fifth pales in comparison as a money spinner to this one. The crowds wanted to hear it, and its popularity led to Beethoven's only opera, the unsuccessful Fidelio, getting another airing at Vienna Opera House, thereby giving him the opportunity to revise it and create the version we know today. So this piece, which is possibly responsible for inspiring the synthesizer and the re-editing of Fidelio also helped cement the relationship between Beethoven and the inventor of the metronome. Well, not the inventor, strictly speaking. Maltzell stole the idea from a lad with the funny name of Winkle, <laughs> whose chronometer did the same job as the metronome, but he never got round to selling it. Ah, poor Winkle. What happened to Winkle? Well, Winkle went even further than Maltzell with the panharmonican idea, creating his Componium, an instrument that would appear to compose by combining two-bar segments aleatorically. 
You're right, there is a lot of bizarre stuff in this one. What happened to Meltzel after the Panharmonicon? He sold the instrument in Paris for 120,000 francs, which must have been a staggering amount of money at the time, and then became court mechanician in Vienna, before eventually dying of suspected alcohol poisoning in a ship moored off the coast of Venezuela. Ah, for he was a jolly good fellow. Quite the lad. Gosh, it is quite the yarn, considering it's a bit of a naff piece. What do you think this story tells us? Well, I think there are multiple conclusions we could draw from this. Like Nabukov's Pale Fire or Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, there are several possible endings, and it's up to us to work out which we find most convincing. It's ironic for an analysis of a pre-programmed automaton. Agreed. Maybe the moral of this story is that even great artists have bad days. That the canon, like social media algorithms, has elevated only some aspects of Beethoven's output, giving us an image of the composer as an untouchable, faultless ubermensch, when actually he was just as human as the rest of us. Does remembering that even our heroes are flawed help us to be more forgiving of each other when we err? Help us to converse in shades of grey rather than black and white? Mm, I'd rate that as quite compelling on the conclusion, Amita. What about the conclusion that even if you don't reap the benefits, it's always worth taking a risk, collaborating in unusual ways? Would modern audiences benefit from the joys of the synthesizer or the new edition of Fidelio without Ludwig van agreeing to work with a slightly mad conman? Sometimes even artistic failures lay fertile groundwork for fruitful future endeavours. Mm, yeah, maybe. I like the alliteration, at least. What about the conclusion that a good story can help elevate a bad piece into something interesting? I think that's certainly what's happened here, and arguably with the entire output of Hector Berlioz. <laughs> Whoa there! I know. Come back for that one. Should we embrace that aspect of musicology or be wary of it? I don't want to say that a piece by Florence Price is good just because her story is exceptional. I want to appreciate it as a fantastic piece of its own. But then I love it when the context of a composition enhances the listening. I think that's a thorny one. I haven't worked out where I land on that yet. Yeah, yeah. Maybe those are questions for people to ponder over the course of the summer break. Answers on a postcard, please. Very happy to hear what people think about that. The only conclusion I can say for sure is that Wellington's Victory is the second best piece written about a battle won by the Duke. Second best? My name is Stephen Isselis. I'm a cellist of sorts, and occasionally even a writer. Um, now, I know you've been talking about music books, but I'd like to talk about a book that's really a novel, but it does have music rather at the centre of it. It's a book by Wilkie Collins, the Victorian author, friend of Dickens, and it's called Armadale. And I read it many years ago, and I don't think I've ever found it so hard to put down a book. Um, the beginning, I warn you, is quite heavy going, and I thought, oh dear. But once the heroine, or whatever she is, the vamp, Lydia Gwilt comes in, one gets hooked. And the point is that when she's not making complete mischief for everybody, she spends her time playing Beethoven piano sonatas and completely forgetting the world and everything that's going wrong with it. And one actually becomes very fond of her, not least because she's playing the Beethoven sonatas. So I do recommend this book as a proud member of the Wilkie Collins Society. I'm doing my bit for them because he was an extraordinary man and he's an extraordinary writer and it's an extraordinary novel.
Thank you. Hello, I'm Freya Parr and I work in editorial for BBC Music Magazine and the book I want to recommend is The Lark Ascending Poetry, Music and Landscape in 20th Century Britain by Richard King. Um, I reviewed this for BBC Music Magazine actually and I completely fell in love with it. It kind of guides you through the way music has intersected with the British landscape over the last 100 years or so um, and how that relationship has changed and how events like Brexit have changed the way we perceive both British music and the British landscape. Um, so it kind of takes you through from Vaughan Williams and Butterworth collecting folk songs in kind of like the early 1900s uh, to the illegal raves uh, taking place across the southwest that birthed the Acid House movement um, and the events at Greenham Conham, Common uh, Peace Camp as well. Um, and there's one quote from it that I love and have been literally reciting to everyone that will listen um, so I'll share it with you now it says a people are nothing without the ability to congregate together in the outdoors under the sky and I read that in the first few weeks of lockdown um, and it had particular potency uh, and I couldn't help but wonder how our relationship to the British countryside will change in a post-coronavirus world Hi there, my name is Tom Service and I present a um, music audio package called The Listening Service on Radio 3. Uh, the book that I've been obsessed by recently is, is Samuel Beckett's Malloy, uh, a novel I've been reading for the first time. I mean, it, it, every phrase of this thing is just, it sums up, I don't know, it really speaks to, I think, everything about where we are now. Look, oh, I'll find it here. Here's, um, here's one of the reasons uh, when he's, Malloy's writing about words you see and he says all i know is what the words know and the dead things and that makes a handsome little sum with a beginning a middle and an end as in the well-built phrase and the long sonata of the dead the long sonata of the dead it's a fantastic phrase isn't it and truly it little matters what i say this or that or any other thing saying is inventing wrong very rightly wrong well, that sums up a lot, really. Yeah, and the whole world feels pretty Beckettian to me at the moment, and the way he uses language is, is always like music. You know, music is something which is defines completely the uh, purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. It's hard to speak like Beckett. Um, uh, of, um, yeah, of, of, kind of, of kind of everything at the moment. So, yeah, I feel like it's it's time for Samuel Beckett. When is it not time for Samuel Beckett, I guess? Anyway, you know, uh, also, oh, by the way, just, just one other thing on this is that uh, the idea of the nihilism of, of Beckett, of course that's true, but really there's a complete joy in the in the delight of the language, which becomes a delight of sound itself, uh, which again is, is close to why uh, one of the reasons I think that, that music means as much as it does to us uh, at the moment, that delight in something which is not us, but, but in which we recognise... Uh, our strange patterns of behaviour repeating on and on and stopping and starting again on and on, call that going, call that on so yeah, Samuel Beckett Malloy there you are Getting text ain't no fun books responsibly. Tim, this week you've undertaken our first ever interview with an author. Mm, Annick Lafarge is a New York-based writer and editor whose latest book, Chasing Chopin, A Musical Journey Across Three Centuries, Four Countries and Half a Dozen Revolutions, comes out later this month. 
She describes it as a composite of various tactics of investigation, biography, travel reporting and musicology sit side by side with detours through literature and art history, as well as conversations with experts and musicians. It's a really good read. We ended up speaking for about an hour on the book, but what follows is a sort of highlights reel of our conversation. Anyway, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you f- indeed for writing the book. And I, actually, it's perfect for me because I, I've never read a book on Chopin. I'm not really, I haven't been it's sort of indoctrinated into the cult of Chopin in, in the way that so many of my peers have been. And certainly my brother, he's a much better pianist than I. So I thought, brilliant, here's the perfect opportunity for me to get to know him. Perhaps before we get into the detail of the book, could you tell me what the impulse was that made you want to write it? Well, you know, I thing that happened um, to me was that I, I was visiting a friend in Chicago and she was dying. She was an author that I had worked with. Um, she actually wrote a very famous uh, article in the New York Times called You May Want to Marry My Husband, which was about how she was about to die and she wanted to find a suitable replacement for herself. It was quite, she was quite a remarkable woman. Her name was Amy Rosenthal. And I flew out to Chicago to see her and spent time with her and then took the overnight train home. And before the train left at like nine o'clock, I, I stopped by a jazz club. And in the middle of this set, this really raucous, jolly, you know, musical moment, they started playing Chopin's Funeral March. It was really kind of surreal because I'd been thinking about the piece a lot because my mother had died recently and I'd been thinking about it then too. And what was unusual about this was that they were, the, 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 the trio, they kept passing it back to each other and they were smiling and they were like almost like in joy with this funeral march. And I just thought, why does this piece keep turning up? So when I got on the train home, I started Googling and I started reading about it. And it's, um, it's just a, it's a fascinating story. And, and, I, and I also found, I've always loved Chopin since I took up the piano 25 years ago. I found that through the story of this, the composition of Opus 35, which is the sonata in which the funeral march appears, you can really find every piece of, of Chopin's story. All the key themes of his life are there in that period during which he wrote it, which was 1837 to 1840. So, and, and there were just a lot of surprises too along the way. Yeah. You, you spoke briefly, you said you, you do play the piano a bit, but you're a, an editor rather than a sort of musicologist as such. So you haven't come at this from a musicological standpoint, have you? You're, I mean, you've written a, a travel book, am I right? Yeah, uh, I wrote a book about the High Line. Yeah, that was also published in the UK as well. Um, yeah, I write about place. This book is very much about place because I really, I traveled that. To me, that was where I found the story was by going into these places, to Mallorca, to Paris, to Noans, to France. That's how I kind of put stories together is by going going to places and thinking about place. Mm. One of those places being Ashburnham in Massachusetts, where there's this incredible piano museum that I hadn't heard of before. Yeah, it's an amazing place. Um, it's in this little town, tiny, tiny town, um, just outside Boston. And the couple that runs it, a married couple named Patricia and and Michael Frederick, they have 30-odd pianos dating from the 1920s back down to the 1790s. And when you go to visit them, what they do is is they're both very accomplished pianists, and they play the same piece of music on all the different pianos. And they take you backwards from 1920, from Steinway, through Busendorfer, through 
um, Erard, through Pleyel, through all the way back to 1790. So it, it really, um, what you do is, is you hear the different sounds. In those days, there were hundreds of piano makers around Europe. And the makers in Vienna, for instance, didn't care what people liked in New York or in Paris. They cared what people in Vienna wanted to hear. And so each piano had its, um, its own color, its own qualities. But what the Fredericks do in this study center that they have in, in Ashburnham is they, is they really teach you how to listen. And so you start to hear, because of course the composers, when they were writing for these instruments, they were writing in different ways. I mean, it's often said that the, the opening part of the movement, the, uh, in the, the first movement in the Moonlight Sonata, that Beethoven intended you to play it with one pedal. You could do that on the piano that he knew. If you did it on a modern Steinway or Busendorf or a Yamaha, it would sound like mud. You have to keep, you have to pedal through every, every phrase. And so those are, this was one, one small example of how the, you know, the playing and the music was really different then. Yeah. And Chopin being the ultimate example of the pianist's composer. And that's one of the things that really struck me reading the book, this, this way in which he kind of pushed against the tide of contemporary classical musicians in that he was so focused on the piano and stuck to it so religiously, whereas somebody like Berlioz's contemporary was far more happy to go and do the opposite and be as big as possible. It had always registered that Chopin hadn't written very much for orchestra, but I hadn't realised the extent to which he was gripped by the piano and all of its subtleties and indeed his stubbornness in refusing to write for anything else. And he was and he was pressured throughout his entire life by everyone who was close to him, his teachers, his family, his um, his friends, to write in the big forms. It's one of the things that I really found that I admired in him, that I really loved about him, was his determination to go his own way. And he he knew what he needed to say, he knew what he wanted to write, and he went ahead and he did it anyway. And he got everything that he needed. The piano had the entire universe of sound and color that he needed in order to express the ideas that he needed to express. Yeah, and of course, the other way that he opposed the sort of Berlioz philosophy is that he wasn't interested in programmatic music in the same way that Berlioz was. And there's that wonderful anecdote you gave, or you write about in the book of his comp composition of the rain, or so-called raindrop prelude which took place while he was in Mallorca and the title of which he argued about with his lover at the time, George Sand, and which, when listening to, it kind of does sound like raindrops, but actually that's a moniker that had been given to the piece by his publishers, you know, a long time after. Yeah, well, a lot of people added, added yeah, but his publishers did add titles, which he hated and resisted. Um, yeah. I don't know if he was reacting in part to other composers like Mendelssohn and Berlioz and Schumann and, and Liszt, who put these very flowery titles on their music. But that story I love in, in Mallorca because, you know, it, it to me it shows a, a dynamic of the relationship between Chopin and Sand that is not really written about a lot. And it's this, you know, Sand was really a very complicated figure and very difficult, I think, and very and and very self-involved in a lot of ways. But she really was was very committed to enabling Chopin and other artists, and and what you get in that story in the in the in the old monastery, the old abandoned monastery in Majorca, is this argument that they have, where she comes in and she says, "Oh, that piece you were playing, I heard the drops of rain on the roof," um, and he says, "No, you didn't. That's ridiculous." You know, I mean, for him that was programmatic. That was like trying to import some oral, you know, um, narrative intention on his part. Yeah. And so they have this argument with each other, but it's an argument between two artists 
who are talking in the language that they inhabit and that they live in and that they and that they know. And it's really it's it's uh, it's why I it's why I love that story. But the guy who runs the museum, Gabrielle Quicklaff, told me quite quite certainly you cannot hear raindrops on the roof. You can hear them out in the terrace, but you cannot hear them on the. On yeah. the Hello, my name is Ishani Perrin-Panayagam and I'm a musician. I'm a pianist, a music director and a composer. My book recommendation isn't about music, but it's definitely about creativity. It's a work of fiction and I read it maybe five or six years ago. It's called Ella Minnow P and it's by Mark Dunn. The book is set on a fictitious island where the supposed creator of the sentence the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, which is a pangram, using every letter of the alphabet at least once. It's set on this island where he supposedly lived. The sentence is immortalised on a statue, but as letters start falling off one by one, the government decides it's some kind of instruction from beyond the grave and goes all totalitarian on it, banning this latest letter from all communications with severe punishments on disobeying this. The story is told via the letters passed between Ella and her loved ones, so we see this brilliant, brilliant young woman, and therefore the author, jump through these increasingly tightening linguistic hoops. It's some kind of triumph of creativity over limitation, fueled by perseverance and defiance. It's also a really good reminder of how much choice of language really matters, and the power of mass unthinking but also the power of alliance and allyship. Ella Minope is a huge, beautiful burst, the celebration of creativity and the incredible things it can achieve. Hi there, my name is Nicholas Mulroy, a professional tenor. Um, I really enjoy books that make connections with different elements of life and culture. And the book I'd recommend today is uh, Stephen Hoff's Rough Ideas. I found it incredibly rewarding. Um, it's wide-ranging and broad in its themes, with a real lightness of touch. Um, they're sort of it's a collection of notes made what he in what he calls dead time traveling or in airports and dressing rooms on the road. Uh, but there's also real insight and serious depth. Um, his ideas about how music of the past speaks today as, to us as a sort of telescoping of human experience, I found particularly touching. And he wears his intellect very, very lightly. Um, and in the way he's able to weave in and out of all sorts of different uh, themes and tangents, I thought this was a book that was an ideal sort of touring companion. It's learned, it's generous, but ultimately it's full of humanity. Hello, I'm Stephen Huff. I play the piano and I compose. And uh, here I am talking about a book that I've been reading for the Classical Music Pod. And I've chosen uh, Geoffrey Kalberg's book, Chopin at the Boundaries, Sex, History and Musical Genre. Well, surely you're all interested in one of those three categories. Um, but this is a very interesting book about Chopin, if you have an interest in, in him. Not so much biographically, but uh, musicologically. He dissects many different aspects of Chopin. I just look at the titles here. You have the, the rhetoric of genre, and he has a long discussion about the nocturne in G minor, Opus 15, a very peculiar, mysterious work. He ties it in with Polish nationalism and the mazurka, and it actually totally makes sense after reading about that. 
Uh, the harmony of the tea table, gender and ideology, and the piano nocturne. Well, I'm recording all the Chopin nocturnes at the moment, so I'm very interested in this particularly. And uh, the idea of the feminine in the nocturne. I sort of hadn't clocked that most people who played the piano in the 19th century were women. Um, so unpack that at your peril. Uh, many other things. Chopin's late style, in defense of the prelude, the idea of small forms, and uh, the Chopin problem, which I haven't got to yet, variants and alternate versions. Chopin was not indecisive in the way he composed, but he couldn't pin down his final ideas because his music came out of improvisation. And uh, how do you put down an improvisation in a fixed way? So I would recommend this book. It's published by Harvard University Press. And happy reading. It's a fascinating relationship, as you say, that that Chopin and George Sand had. Because, yeah, as you say, she was so... She had this absolute commitment to facilitating not just his creativity, but the creativity of lots of other artists that she was kind of a benefactor for, I suppose. There was a, a painter, Delacroix, who who stayed with her. And, and they had these incredible salon evenings with guests like Liszt. And you just think, God, I wish I could have been there. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah, being was... in that room? Such a, I mean, today we go to Carnegie Hall or we go to, you know, to the Albert Hall where you are, whatever. We go to these big concert halls. We've, we've really missed out, I think, in our, in our culture, we've missed out on the, on the salon. Sometimes you can get it. You, you can go to a smaller, the, the Fredericks actually do concerts in a small New England church in Ashburnham on their, on their 19th century pianos. So there are plenty of opportunities to do that, but not like it was back then where you were in somebody's home. And, and, you know, the improvisation too, I think, you know, a lot of what those artists did when they were in the salon was they improvised and it was always new and, and interesting and, and just, you know, right in the moment. And that's another sort of facet of Chopin's musical philosophy, I guess, is that he, I guess he felt strongly that you could never quite capture a perfect musical moment within the concert hall, or certainly it was a lot more rare than in the salon which is something that I hadn't realized before reading this book, of course. And, and in fact, that actually reminded me of a book came out uh, about a year ago by the pianist Stephen Huff. Oh, yes, uh, I've read it. It's a terrific book. Wonderful book, yeah. And he told a, an anecdote about the Polish pianist Leopold Godowski, who apparently rev only revealed his genius at parties, small parties amongst friends, which is not a dissimilar kind of attitude to the to what Chopin had and his his own feelings about the concert hall and, and for Chopin I think the the concerts I mean he he was very uh, you know very nuanced subtle I think in, in a lot of ways the, the the playing that he did and he played on an instrument the playel that was a much quieter piano than the larger like the Erard is a much bigger sound and I think and he got a lot of criticism for the kind of smallness of his sound and he wrote letters to his family saying, everybody complains that I, you know, they can't hear me and I'm, I'm too delicate and whatever. And, and I think he just decided this is just not where art happens, at least yeah. not the art that he needed to make. And so he kind of walked away from it. He gave, I think, around 30 or so concerts with public recitals throughout his life. And during an eight year period, Liszt gave a thousand, you know, so it. And also the, the independence, again, of Chopin to be able to walk away. I think it was probably, this was an age when celebrity was really starting to churn up. 
not unlike our own period. It's hard to imagine a really big star walking away from the from the public eye today. I think it wasn't that dissimilar then because it was a moment when there were piano duels and they were advertising newspapers and there were all these big concert halls and that's what people were doing. And so to walk away from that really showed, you know, such, I think, artistic integrity and knowing his own, knowing himself. He was comfortable doing that. I really admire that. I wanted to ask something if, if I were to set out and write, try and write a book on Chopin, something that would worry me. Did, did you feel the weight of the many books that have already been written on Chopin My God, before you yes. set off? The hardest thing for me, I mean, there were a number of hard things, one of which was just that, that a lot of the important resources are in different languages. And so I had to work very hard to get my high school French and Spanish up a notch so I could do a certain amount of reading in those languages and also interviewing in those languages because a number of the people that I spoke to were French and, and Spanish. But the mountain, I mean, this is the Mount Everest of writing about Chopin. And particularly in the last 40 years, I think the, the field of musicology has just surged and, and the tools and the, and, the, and the science of it have gotten much more sophisticated, I think. But it's just, it's also just really hard to separate out fact from fiction too. There's so many myths that had grown up about, about Chopin. I was lucky that Alan Walker published his magisterial and, and really definitive in English biography of Chopin a couple of years ago, because there were several stories that I had fallen in love with that when I read Walker's book, I realized they just weren't true. Do you have an example? <laughs> yeah, one example is that when he uh, left Warsaw the last time, and he was going on a, you know, the way everyone did then and sometimes still do now to go and, and visit all the great capital cities of Europe and hear music. Tool, uh, yeah. His friends and his teacher ushered him to this spot in his hometown of Zalazowa in, in, in Poland and scooped up some Polish earth and they gave it to him in a little urn and he took it with him. That part is true. They did because they wanted him to bring a part of his homeland because they they knew then how he was really so much the voice of Poland in music. And, and, and music is so fundamental, I think, to the experience of being Polish. So that part is true, but then there's this legend that grew up that when he was buried at Père Lachaise, somebody took that urn that he had kept all of his life and they sprinkled it into his grave, um, which is so poignant because again, particularly for somebody preoccupied with place and landscape, the idea that some piece of his landscape returned to his grave in Lachaise, even as his heart had been removed by his sister at his request. So that was one story I was really sorry to lose, but nice. Walker makes it pretty clear that, that was <laughs> probably not what happened. But there is a plaque in that spot in Jelajovavola. There is a little, a little, a little sign. Hmm. Hello, I'm Debbie Wiseman. I'm a composer and I'm going to recommend the book The Silent Musician, Why Conducting Matters. It's by Mark Wigglesworth. I read it, I think, about six months ago and I always love to conduct my scores. So it was fascinating to read his humorous, his insightful observations about musicians and the music that they're playing. It's written with honesty and wit and it's great for anyone interested in the art and the magic of conducting. And it's also fascinating for musicians. It explores what a conductor does and why it matters. Hey dudes, Harry Sever here, and this is my contribution to the book club. Um, I would like to suggest Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which was released this year uh, and is a 
sort of semi-fictionalised imagining of the lives of Shakespeare's family, um, in particular his wife Anne Hathaway and his son Hamnet, who died uh, possibly of the Black Death a few years before Hamlet was written. Um, I just finished it today and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell's storytelling is gripping and colourful and very moving. Um, she paints a very vivid picture of life in Jacobethan England. You can really um, smell the smells, uh, which, as far as I can tell, is, is just manure, basically. Um, and, and and kind of hear the sounds of, of, of the street. Um, Shakespeare himself is notably absent. Um, and while there are nice hints at parallels between his home life and characters in his plays um, that's kind of an aside it strikes me as more a, a book about motherhood and growing up and family life um, and of grief and it's all the better for it I think um, there's also a nice side to it uh, about theatres being closed because of a global pandemic uh, which feels a little bit close to home, but but enjoyable uh, to realise that we've been here before. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it and I hope you do too. Hi, my name's Alexia Sloan and I'm a composer and poet. The book I'd like to recommend is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. I first read this as an audiobook a couple of years ago and then reread it, this time through text, last year. It's among the most beautiful novels I've ever read. It's about twins, Esther and Rahel, and their experiences growing up in India during a time of great political unrest. The writing style is rich, the narrative densely woven and intricately sculptural. It's a work about memory and possibility, about grief and about love, about creation and destruction. Would very highly recommend. One of the things that you write about quite extensively, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, was the novel relationship between Chopin and George Sand. I mean, she was an incredible, unique woman in her own right, but their relationship was also completely novel. I mean, they were together for eight or nine years, but they only slept together for the first of those years. And then in her own work, she is constantly questioning the status quo and exploring this idea of the perfect relationship between a man and a woman. Would she be able to elaborate on that? Are you sure you could explain it better than I? Yeah, she, she was during that period, particularly with Chopin, and you, and you see it in a couple of the works that she wrote, particularly Gabrielle, this fascinating novel and dialogue that she wrote during the Mallorca period. She was really preoccupied with the idea of the relationship between a man and a woman. And she believed that there should be not only just, you know, literal independence, but kind of spiritual independence. There was a way in which I think she she envisioned, she had been cruelly treated by her own family. Her father died in a horse riding accident um, when she was very young. Her little brother died right after he did. Her mother, who was a kind of imperious French woman who was descended from a Polish king, she made a deal with San's mother because San's mother was a peasant. She, her father had sold canaries on the Seine. And she basically paid off San's mother to stay in Paris and let her bring up little Aurore, little Georges San. And, you know, San felt abandoned from 
a very young age, felt that she had been given away for money, felt that she had she had just been sort of bereft, I think, of the kind of love that most young people really need. And so I think throughout her adult life, she struggled with the idea of what, you know, what loyalty is and what loyalty and friendship is. And I think she was much more preoccupied with that than she was with sex. I mean, she had a lot of love affairs and, and a lot of sex, and that was obviously very, you know, essential to her, particularly her younger years. But she stayed with Chopin for like eight, seven or eight years after they stopped having sex, a year mm -hmm. after they got together. And she engraved the date in the embrasure in her window in Noah as though it actually meant something. This mm -hmm. was the end of this stage of the relationship. But there was another spiritual dimension to this relationship that she was very preoccupied with. She was very preoccupied with enabling him. He was very sensitive to, to noise, for instance. And the household was really filled with children and servants and friends. And he had his piano upstairs in his room. And she basically re-architected the space. She created a kind of buffer and horsehair in the door. And she removed the tiles in the floor and replaced it with wood. She did everything she could to literally soundproof his room so that he could work. There was a way in which she just wanted to enable good work. Yeah. The novel, Gabriel, which you write about in the book, I haven't read it, but the way that you describe it, it reminds me, or it it feels almost like a precursor to Virginia Woolf's Orlando in the way that this experimental novel is used as a platform to explore gender roles and question gender roles. And I, th I found I that... I book was really very ahead of her time. I reread Orlando after, right after I read Gabriel and I, and I had the same feeling. I thought, boy, without that book, I wonder if, if this book would be the same. Yeah. What, what she was interested in in Gabriel was really the, the idea of how do you have a, a marriage without the legality, that, that marriage was really a state of spiritual engagement with someone, yeah. intellectual, spiritual, emotional engagement. It wasn't about contracts and property and land and children. It was about how do we work together and be together and enable each other in a relationship. Yeah. And she just kept working that out in one book after another. And, and I don't think she ever really got it. But I, but I, but she was a, you know, a roughly abandoned young person. And the fact that she was able to imagine these things, to imagine these relationships that, that really didn't exist in those, at least they didn't exist as a, as an option on the, on the menu for women at that time. Yeah. And from Chopin's perspective, do you think he was happy to be in this, you know, unique kind of relationship or do you find it frustrating or was he, you know, was he just pleased to have a place to work in the company of a sympathetic artist. In his letters, he, he calls her my angel, and he's, he expresses um, amazement that she was so diligent. I mean, Sen would sit in bed literally all day and write. She, she, her hours were completely different from his. The household would go to sleep, and then George Sen would, would, would start writing, at, you know, and, and, and write until the early hours of the morning, and then she would sleep, and then she would sit in her. In, in Spain, I think she, she, there were days when she would sit in her bed and write all day long. And this did amaze Chopin, her, her, just her industriousness, her abilities. I, I also think it was, you know, he, she, she did take care of him. Um, she was an, an, an almost insufferable martyr about her. Her letters are just hard to read. They're so self-involved and how I've, you know, I've suffered so much and I've done so much and I'm, you know, so she, she must've been extremely difficult so I, you know, I, it's 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 hard to know. It's really hard to know from this distance what it was what it was really like. I mean, I think she created for him a means to be creative, 
and he did much of the best work of his career under her under yeah. her watch. So I think it was a very I think it was a relationship that was she did very good work with him too. Mm-hmm. So I think they really did enable each other. They they were two artists living together, doing their best with completely different personalities, <laughs> biorhythms, um, you know, metiers, this everything. It's such a strange relationship. It, isn't it? Yeah. But the outcome of it is really so remarkable and so wonderful. We enjoy it every day, those of us who listen to his music and and read her books. Hi, my name is Danny Howard, and I'm a composer and orchestrator based in London. There's a book that I read about 10 years ago that's really stuck with me ever since, and it's called Debussy in Proportion, a musical analysis by Roy Howard. So I've always loved maths and found the connection between music and maths to be fascinating. And this book basically presents the potential argument that Debussy either consciously or subconsciously, and that's the debate, used the golden section or the golden ratio as as we might know it throughout his music. So it goes. It basically goes through some of his most well-known works, including Je, La Mer, Claire de Lune, and loads more of his pieces, and basically analyzes how his music is so clo- closely linked to this ratio. And it's absolutely fascinating. I really um, recommend this book. It's definitely a bit dense, but well worth the read. My name is Bernard Hughes. I'm a composer, teacher, and writer previous interviewee on the Classical Music Podcast and a big fan of the pod. The book I've chosen is Nicholas Cook's Music, A Very Short Introduction, which was published in 1998 as number two in the OUP's Very Short Introduction series, which now stretches to more than 500 books. As the name suggests, this book is short, 125 pages, but has a higher interesting thoughts per page ratio than any other book I can think of. It sets out not to be a traditional introduction to music, going through the musical periods and great composers and so on, but addresses what music is and has been, and how we relate to it, how we study it and listen to it, and the role it has in our world. Although it's now 22 years old and slightly dated in places, there are mentions of record shops and modems, and discussions of then-current issues in music academia, but it's also quite prescient, talking of how, and I quote, chronological and geographical differences evaporate, as we increasingly think of music as an almost infinite pool of resources to be downloaded from the web. He has fascinating insights into Beethoven, the Beatles, traditional Chinese music, romantic philosophy, and although the arguments are not simple, Professor Cook's learning is worn lightly and the prose style is completely readable. I have, over the years, recommended this book to students more than any other single book. Rereading it for the umpteenth time for this podcast made me re-engage with the ideas and I immediately want to read it again. It doesn't take long to read, but it punches well above its physical weight. Hello, my name is Michelle Phillips. I am a senior lecturer and deputy head of undergraduate programmes at the Royal Northern College of Music and I'm very happy to be telling you about one of my favourite books. The book is by the Austrian author Gert Jonker and it's called Awakening to the Great Sleep War. Juncker was an Austrian author who died in 2009 and his writing is hugely imaginative and experimental and that's in no small part due to the fact he studied piano in Vienna before he left to pursue a career in writing. Not all of his novels are available in English but one that was translated in 2012 is his Awakening to the Great Sleep War. 
It's a fantastic story, which it tells the tale of Bergmuller, through whose eyes we see this magical and often impossible beautiful world as he talks to the birds and philosophizes about creating spaces out of music. As in much of Jonker's writing, the style throughout is hugely descriptive and addictive, um, but it is mostly void of punctuation, so whole sentences can go on for an entire paragraph or more than a page. And the effect is that the prose is challenging to read, but utterly compelling. There are elements of magic realism, and sleep and dreams are a central theme. For example, Bergmuller states that he considered dreams to be not only his and our friends, but also superiors, authorities. In actual fact, people only live their lives in order to support their dreams. So Jonker's a candidate to be one of my favourite authors, and he's hugely underappreciated, I think. So I heartily recommend Awakening to the Great Sleep War. Actually, that's one thing that we haven't touched on yet in the, it, it, his relationship with Poland. It's a complex one. Obviously, he, he'd been caught out travelling around Europe and wasn't able to go back because of a sort of revolution that was going or, or attempted overthrowing of the brother of the Russian Tsar, who was the kind of governor of Poland at the time. What was his relationship to Poland? What did it mean to him? Well, I think, you know, if you look, one of the interesting things about the story of the funeral march is that that lovely nocturne-like song in the middle of it, which is referred to by a musicologist as the trio that breaks up the two statements of the funeral march, that was really the first part of that sonata that was composed. And there's a manuscript that was discovered in his hand that bears a date at the bottom of the trio, of the D-flat major part, that bears the date of the, um, the anniversary of this uprising in November of 1830 in Warsaw, that when it happened, 1831, sorry, when it, when it happened, Chopin was really unable to get back to his country because there was all of this uproar and um, he never ended up going back. But the melody in the middle of this, of the funeral march, he was clearly thinking about that moment. He was clearly thinking of his homeland. He was clearly thinking about that unrest that made it difficult for him to, to return. So I think, I mean, in, in his music, if you read books about Chopin by people who are professional musicologists, you can, they, they, they identify in various pieces. I mean, beyond the, the, the genres that are, that are classically published, like mazurkas and waltzes, Krakowiak's and all that, they identify things that they call topoi or, or you know, um, iconographies of place actually in the music itself. And there are things like, I mean, in the scherzo in, in B minor, which is a really remarkable piece that he composed right after he had left um, Warsaw. It's this very violent, it starts with this howl and it's enormously emotional. And then in the middle, after all of this kind of very dissonant and, and wild writing, he inserts this Polish cradle song, um, like a Christmas carol, um, before it then goes back into the very dissonant parts. And so, you know, he did that a lot. He, he would insert hymns, things that his mother sang to him or yeah. um, a cradle song or whatever. So the, the relationship, I mean, he really was sort of the voice of Poland. And it's funny, you know, today I read an interview with Norman Davies, the great English historian of Poland, who wrote uh, about, or who talked to, to an interviewer about how you know, a lot of people don't speak Polish. It's not, it's not the kind of language that, like French or Spanish, that, that a lot of us are taught in school. But Chopin really is kind of the voice of Poland in terms of the language that it uses to speak to the rest of the world. 
And I think it was like that when he was alive. He was that's why all of his friends said, you know, write an opera, write it for Poland, write the great Polish. Yeah. So you see that really throughout his work. You see it showing up in, in music and in, in his letters home to his parents. I mean, he loved his parents. He loved his family. He clearly was very homesick. And But he never went back. I mean, I think he, you know, I think also there's debate about whether he could have gone back. But, you know, he didn't try to go back anyway. Um, Do you see that as a bit of a contradiction at all? Or, you know, somebody missing it so much and yet never attempted to go back? I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really don't quite know what to make of that, to be honest. It's it's really hard. I, I've not read anything compelling on that yeah. by, by a historian or musicologist. I don't, it's, it's something that I, I find I can't quite wrap my head around. You know, in that period, it was a period of enormous unrest throughout Europe. There were revolutions everywhere. And it, it really was very unsettling, I think. And I think he was somebody who really just wanted to work and, and socialize. So I, I'm not sure why he... Never quite made it back. Yeah, was it the uh, player, the the piano maker, who was not that far off getting executed himself in by the yeah. by, by the mob? Yeah, in France, that's right. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, it was a time of great. I I, I often think, you know, lately, particularly in the past few months, you know, where we're seeing a lot of the same rampant nationalism and protests around every city and every country and. And also enormous technological innovation. I mean, that's one thing we haven't talked about. But that period in the 1830s was a moment of extraordinary innovation where there was just so much happening and all the arts were being transformed by the printing press and by other kinds of things. So I, I, I sometimes, you know, it, it hard as it is to put oneself back in that period and, and, and think about, you know, for instance, why he never returned to, to Poland or whatnot. When we're here in this moment and feeling so vulnerable and so kind of threatened about even going out of our own homes, in part because of the virus and in part because just of all of the chaos around the world, it drives it home a little bit. It makes you kind of, it, it's brought me closer to the revolution and social unrest that I think people of that era went through during that period between, you know, around 1830 and the late yeah. 1840s. And actually reading this book, it's difficult not to think of the recent re-election of the Polish president, Duda, who's, you know, a bit of a some would say, right-wing extremist. It's funny about that because, you know, Poland, um, they had the first uh, constitution in Europe. It was 1791, I believe. They were very inspired by the American Revolution. And the French, of course, were very inspired by the American Revolution. So Poland looked to some degree to, to our country. They're now today, again, kind of looking to our country, but in a whole different way. So it's it's strange the way the world politics go. Um, yeah. I, I thought that too, and I thought I thought a lot about this when when Duda was reelected. Yeah, it's, it's cyclical in a way, isn't it? Sort of almost plus ça change, and I, I don't know if that's reassuring or absolutely terrifying. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Anik. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Lovely to talk to you, Timmy. Thank you so pleasure. much for your thoughtful reading of the book and, and everything else. And I wish you well. Nice Stay safe. Oh dear, here I go again, buying books faster than I read them. No! No!
that's it from us for a few weeks, probably, mm. maybe longer, until we've had a good rest. Yep, and all that remains is to say thank you to the very wonderful people who sent in their book recommendations for today, and also to all our guests over what has been an elongated season. Thank you very much to all those lovely folks. And thank you indeed for the music. Con non non caro, 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 con non non